Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to today's show, I want to let you know that we're offering our podcast listeners a special 20% lifetime discount to the China Africa Daily Brief. Now that's the newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day that provides the most comprehensive digest of everything China's doing on the continent and now increasingly throughout the global south. In addition to the newsletter, you'll also get full archive access to the website and the China Africa Experts Network as well. To get that discount, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast at checkout. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndica Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, there is a lot going on in the security space, and we're going to be heading back to the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. This is a topic we've been covering a lot, only because there is just so much going on. But a lot of what's happening in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf has its roots in East Africa, specifically in Djibouti, in the security field. And we're going to be talking today about the geopolitics of China's security engagement in the MENA region with a specific focus on what's going on in the Gulf and places like Iran. But before we get there, we have to talk about what's been going on in Washington and among U.S. stakeholders. It has been quite a week. And Kobus, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was a month ago, in the newsletter, I boldly declared that the debt trap narrative is dead. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. And, and I was super confident because we hadn't heard it for about a year, more or less. And I thought that all of the writing from people like the Rhodium Group, from Hannah Ryder, from Deborah Browdergham, and countless other researchers had finally sunk in within official Washington, and they got the message that this is a bum deal and just a theory that doesn't bear out with the evidence. Well, uh, I will admit freely that I was 125% wrong on that because the debt trap narrative is, in fact, alive and well in Washington. Uh, let's start last week uh, in uh, in Washington with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He did a virtual trip to Africa. I mean, do they think, Cobus, that people believe this stuff when they call it virtual travel to Africa? <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. And the fact that, by the way, today as we're recording this, Blinken is on his way to Ukraine must be such an insult to people in Africa. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, it's just ridiculous yeah. that they, you know, and it just, and we had this great article on our site from uh, from from Ronald Cato, who is a, a contributor, and he was like, you know, the fact that Blinken was in Korea and Tokyo and he's on his way to Ukraine really indicates where Africa fits on the priority list. Anyway, he did these things called a virtual travel to Africa, to Kenya and Nigeria, which is basically French for a Zoom call. And during this call, he did an interaction with some students of the Young African Leadership Initiative, the Yali students. And what was remarkable about this exchange he had was that he was floated a softball question about how is the United States going to compete with China in Africa? I mean, as easy a question as you're ever going to get. And it was remarkable how little Blinken knew. I mean, remarkable how little he knew. And what he did is he referred back to, there we go, the debt trap narrative, and he talked about imported labor. And what I did in the newsletter was I actually went back in time 10 years to find every single Secretary of State over the past decade, dating back to 2011 with Hillary Clinton when she was in that role, who said exactly the same thing, one after another after another. Literally, the only thing that Blinken had to say was 10-year-old talking points. I mean, that's just shocking to me. But anyway, that's where we are today. And then today, Brahma Chalani, who invented the debt trap narrative, this is a, I don't know what he is, he's an author, commentator, in India. Back in 2017, he wrote an article for Project Syndicate, and he was the one who first introduced the idea of the debt trap narrative. Uh, he had an article published in The Hill. And again, official Washington is listening to this and, and really kind of taps into this idea that in Washington, there is growing anxiety about what the Chinese are doing 
in Africa and in the Middle East. And it's come out over a series of hearings on Capitol Hill. We're going to play you some sound now, both from the House and the Senate, just to try and capture the moments of where we are, at least from the point of view of the legislative branch, as well as what we're seeing from the military as well. So the first one, let's go to the U.S. House Armed Services Committee hearing from April 20th, when General Stephen Townsend, who is the commander for U.S. forces in Africa, otherwise known as AFRICOM, he was speaking with Georgia Republican Austin Scott, who apparently recently visited Mali. And when he was in Mali, he heard a lot about what the Chinese were doing. And again, I want you to listen to what both the general are saying and Austin Scott's question. And again, you'll pick up a lot of the subtleties of the tone of what the current debate is in Washington. Many of the people in the meeting that we had discussed China's activity and expressed concerns that China's activity was going to lead to civil war uh, in many of the countries on the continent of Africa. Yesterday, I'm sorry, last week, Admiral Fowler, uh, head of Southcom, testified and I'll quote him, our interagency partners in the United States have pointed out to us, the FBI and others, that Chinese money laundering is the number one underwriting source for transnational criminal organizations. In your testimony, you mentioned on page 12 uh, that illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing by the communist Chinese is the primary contributor to a growing food crisis that will further drive instability in West Africa. And obviously, food crisis and instability have um historically led to civil wars. My question uh, for you is, how do we stop this activity from China short of absolute war? Thanks, Congressman. I, I think the, uh, the solution there is uh, competition, right? Uh, we want to compete uh, before war Comes. And competition is, uh, is a forever task because uh, you're always trying to stay short of um, war. So uh, with China, we have to compete. And we don't have to compete with them in all 53 countries of the AFRICOM AOR equally. Uh, but we have to pick and choose uh, where we're going to compete. And one of the ways we do that is just simply by calling out uh, their activity uh, on the continent. You, you mentioned illegal fishing, and uh, they are probably, uh, my assessment is, they're probably the number one offender in eagle, illegal fishing. And it's uh, commercial, but we all know that uh, China has a, a command economy. Uh, so uh, calling that out has helped us a lot. Uh, another example is uh, helping uh, countries avoid getting to bad deals uh, with um, China. And this is an example where our Department of State uh, does something. I'm, I'm aware of it, but uh, we offer a free service to evaluate the contracts of any of our African partners before they enter, sign a contract uh, with uh, China uh, or a Chinese entity. The U.S. Embassy will review that contract and point out the inconsistencies and the potential pitfalls in that contract and advise the African partners so they can make smart decisions. I didn't know that, Cobus. Did you know that the the U.S. embassies around Africa are offering that consulting service for contracts? No, no, I didn't, and I I also don't expect any African governments to go for it. You know, because because of all of the all of the the um, you know the confidentiality clauses in in those Chinese um, those you know those those Chinese contracts. You know, it, it would be a different a different issue if this were an American law firm. But it, like having the actual embassy do it, I don't know. And I wonder how much the U.S. embassy in Botswana has an expertise in Chinese contract negotiation. It's just I'm not sure that's an expertise that's very well developed in most American embassies. Uh, Let's kind of fast forward to this week, actually. And one of the things that we've been hearing a lot in Washington press is that the Chinese have added the capacity to dock an aircraft carrier in their Navy base in Djibouti. And this has prompted, not surprisingly, a lot of concern in Washington that China is expanding its power projection capabilities. And this came up in the Senate Armed Services Committee in with Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, who was also the head of the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency. And he was speaking in response to a question from Nebraska Republican James Inhofe. Up until just about two or three years ago, China didn't do anything outside of its own limits. But now, of course, they, they got busy down in Djibouti, 
I've been down there. I've flown over that area. I know what they're doing down there. It's aggressively pursuing a naval base on the west coast of Africa that would give China an enduring military presence in the, the Atlantic. And uh, General Tomlinson called this his number one global power competition concern. Uh, General Barrier, do you agree with General Townsend that China views Africa as a key power projection platform for its military? Senator, I believe the Chinese, um, in order to safeguard their Belt Road Initiative, will emplace military forces where, where they see they need that kind of capability. Africa is certainly one of those places where they have done that. The, the interesting thing about the way they look at Africa is, is sort of this long-term developmental approach will, which will allow them um, over, over a long period to put more forces there. So I, I do agree with uh, General Townsend. But in the extent that Africa is one, one area where strategic competition will play out, it will also play out in Latin America and South America. And wherever they extend their markets, you will find that activity. So you can hear a real sense of anxiety, especially from the congressional representatives, about what the Chinese are doing in these different, you know, these different theaters of operation, if you will. I'm not exactly sure what Senator Inhofe was talking about when he was talking about the Chinese considering a base on the Atlantic coast of Africa. I think they're probably talking about Cabo Verde, but there has been no legitimate talk as far as I've been seeing in all of the reporting, both in Chinese and in English, about any additional military Chinese bases overseas. We'll get our some insight from our guest today on this. But Cobus, what does this tell you about the moment that we're in vis-a-vis the U.S. concerns regarding the Chinese military presence in Africa and around the world? Well, you know, it, it, it certainly does seem to indicate that there's, a, that there's heightened concern. Um, I think it's also... It's it's an, an indication of how there's no there's no move forward in in military affairs without some kind of way of narrativizing that move forward. You know, there's, there's so so at the moment, like it it seems like there's a lot of storylining happening. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of kind of narratives being shaped. Um, and you know, and and with it then comes you know comes the the. The, the way that Africa is Africa can't escape its own narrative position in the US you know it's like it's it will always be a backwater it will always be a kind of a, a, a background a theater you know um, and so so the, the, it is interesting how how there is this kind of name checking of China's developmental approach quote unquote but then you know a kind of a packing away of what of what that would actually mean what that would imply for for competition you know um, and would imply for what what Africa is trying to get out of the out of the relationship in in order to then move forward to a more a more comforting more more traditional kind of narrative where Africa is simply a background one other point that I want to bring up is this happened again last week and this will set the tone for our discussion today is the United States also sent a former ambassador to the United Arab Emirates to Abu Dhabi to really check in about the growing concerns that Washington has about the UAE's increasingly close relationship with the Chinese government. The United States is trying to sell a $23 billion package of F-35s, otherwise known as the Joint Strike Fighter, and also some MQ-9 Reaper drones to the UAE. But there is concern that some of that technology in the F-35 and the MQ-9s will make it into Chinese hands. Uh, the Chinese also sell drones, the Winglong 2, to the United Arab Emirates. So they sent uh, that former ambassador to make sure that it doesn't happen. But again, you can sense the, the, the concern that's out there. There are two interesting research pieces, I'm trying to make sure I phrase this correctly, that are out there by the same person. This week, this month, really important, that really provides some important context to everything that we've just discussed. Protecting China's interests overseas, securitization and foreign policy, a brand new book that's just hot off the press by Andrea Giselli, who's an assistant professor of international relations at Fudan University in Shanghai. And he is also the co-author of a new article, China as an Offshore Balancer in the Middle East and North Africa, which was published last month in the Rusi Journal. He co-authored that piece with Maria Grazia Giuffrida, who's a research fellow at the China Med Project. We are thrilled to have Andrea back on the program again to help us understand all of this mess that's out there. Andrea, congratulations on the book and the paper. Wonderful to speak with you again. Hello. Hello, Eric. Hello, Cobos. Thanks for having me. So it is really an interesting time for you to be publishing both the paper and the book because, as you can see, 
There is a lot going on. Your book and your paper try to provide some context to this. One of the themes that came out of it, out of both actually, is that we are moving from a unipolar world to a multipolar world. And this is something that the Chinese are trying to facilitate in the MENA region, specifically in the Persian Gulf. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you heard from these various sound bites from the US generals and how that fits into some of the trends that you have been reporting on and covering in your book? <laughs> I think those remarks were quite interesting. Um, that's why I, I, I thought I completely agree with, with Cobus when he says uh, there is a lot of story uh, storytelling, a lot of narratives that have been put forward, been put forward about China's presence as something you know um, so threatening, a top priority for for the United Nations, uh, for U.S. foreign policy uh, in Africa and other regions. Um, Still, those. I mean, it's it's true. Chinese presence is expanding. Chinese pre human presence, economic presence, uh, to a far minor extent, also military presence, uh, is expanding um, in in Africa, Middle East, and so far and so on. But I think there is this uh, tendency to essentially attribute certain intentions to China that we're not really sure. Uh, you know what they are. Um, and, and, and something that I try, at least I, I do my best to show in the book, uh, as well as in the article that you kindly mentioned, as well as in the work with the ChinaMed project, um, and so on, is, is try to, you know, to try to add a bit of nuance to this debate that is taking, uh, they always take China as this monolith ready to, uh, you know, plan and carry out this grand schemes, these, these grand plans to, 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 to undermine American influence, which is true, but it's only to some extent. There is a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uh, you know, uh, questions that Chinese policymakers have to find an answer to, uh, a, a lot of doubts uh, about how the United States as well as European countries will react, how you know, local partners will react, and so far and so on. Also, you know, what are the best policies to protect Chinese interests in those regions? Um, so I think it's necessary to add, yeah, again, to, to add nuances and, and try to understand, try to look at things from China's point of view, not from, you know, from the Beltway point of view. So, you know, in, in your book, I mean, the intro to your book, you, you make the point that, that there's essentially two kind of, oh, there's kind of a, a conversation happening um, in, in, in the process of, of securitization. And one is that, you know, that there, there, there's a what you call a, securiti a securitizing actor and then an empowering audience. Um, and there's kind of like, you know, the, the securitization process happens with, you know, in, in the interaction between those two. Could you unpack that a little bit and like discuss who you see as kind of, which who do you see as who, as which actor within China and then maybe also outside of China, you know, maybe in the US? Um, sure. So in, in, the, in the book, I really look at how the necessity to protect Chinese interest um, strictly defined as Chinese assets, so the assets of Chinese companies and the lives of Chinese nationals abroad, um, enter into the Chinese foreign and security policy agenda and how that shaped Chinese foreign policy, especially toward the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, so in in, the, in in the book, I really take uh, the Chinese civilian leadership as the empowering audience, as you know, as those that have to understand what China's interests are, how to define them, and also find a solution in order to protect them. And and the counterpart, which I which I look at, which uh, which, which I take as the empowering audience, then in the book, is essentially their military counterparts, though essentially the soldiers of, of the People's Liberation Army. And so I try to find to understand how these two groups, these two group of elites, uh, look at the same problems and how they came to understand uh, the necessity somehow to develop a, a military option to protect Chinese interest overseas. Which is, it's important to emphasize, the creation of that option does not mean that that's the favorite option, but it's simply a reaction to you know to something that that is, that especially after two thousand eleven evacuation from Libya. Uh, as being perceived as a pressing need for Chinese policymaker, uh, the necessity to be able, if really necessary, to intervene also militarily to protect Chinese interest abroad, but in that in most extreme cases. 
but policymakers have you know they don't have the luxury to uh, to just pray and hope that nothing happens so they have to find solutions and so this is what i look at do you see a similar kind of kind of narrative or you know kind of back and forth narrative developing on the US side as you know kind of as, as you hear these 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 kind of policymakers grappling with with the role of China? There is of course uh, the United States and what more broadly speaking what western countries uh, will make of Chinese moves is definitely something that appears in the Chinese discourse debate uh, but not really in a way that you know uh, it's not seen as something that the, the China is, is developing this military presence in order to undermine, um, you know, pre, you know this, the influence or, or the presence of Western countries. It's more seen as, you know, it's important that we, we do everything in order not to raise the concerns of these other countries because we already have so many problems in protecting, uh, you know, our nationals, the, the assets of our companies from terrorism, piracy, a political instability and so on, we cannot afford also to have this kind of tensions uh, with, with, with Western countries, even outside Asia, even, uh, you know, even outside our home region where we have already a tensions caused by different points of view on the core interest, on Beijing's core interest. So, um, yes, the West is, is part of the, of, is one of the factors in the Chinese debate, but it's not seen as necessarily the, enemy at least from the from over this issue over the issue of protecting chinese interests okay so if that's the case i'm a little confused because you mentioned in in your mm-hmm. paper that uh, china's adopted a strategy of offshore balancing to right. weaken u.s influence in the middle east and north africa but they don't want to establish their own sphere of influence so on the one hand they right. want to diminish u.s influence but they don't have the ability militarily to project force to actually control that so they're using economic and diplomatic means to do that. Mm-hmm. So if they don't want to pick a fight with the West in these parts of the world, then how do they do that at the same time as trying to weaken U.S. influence, specifically the United States? I think there, are, there is one thing that has been clarified, uh, that is undermining U.S. influence does not mean necessarily taking over. These are two different things that have two different costs. Uh, on one hand, it is true that China sees the you know Chinese diplomats often repeat that the way for uh, different crises in the region to 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 find an end is that local lo, local populations find their own the solution for themselves. Um, in, you know, and and at the same time, they always identify intervention from uh, by Western powers as one of the main causes for instability. So there is this, the idea of creating a multipolar region, a multipolar world is meant somehow to eliminate one of the sources of perceived instability. Um, but at the same time, you know, one thing is to, to undermine, one thing is to gain control over uh, an entire region or to establish a sphere of influence. That is something that's much more expensive. Uh, we, we, I, mean, I mean, we saw the experience of the United States in the Middle East has not been easy, it's not been cheap. And so... From the Chinese point of view, as long as they can prevent the United States, you know, to or, or in its allies to replicate the painful of experience of 2011 in Libya, and then what was so what was seen possible to happen in Syria, shortly afterward, that's fine. That does not mean that there cannot be cooperation or anything else. So it's it's about preventing certain disruptive actions from the West, but. You know that's only part of the, of of the solution that they see to uh, ensuring stability and therefore uh, protecting and furthering their interest in the region. And you know, and, and you you describe or you you label um, part of this work, um, you know, of of balancing U.S. interests as offshore balancing. What, what do you mm-hmm. mean by that phrase? Oh, essentially, means trying to use you know low key and relatively cheap tools of statecraft, such as you know economic influence, uh, multilateral platforms such as United Nations or regional platforms uh, that somehow help China to place on with, you know, using its own strength uh, instead of projecting very costly uh, military power, for example, in the, in the, in the Middle East and, and North Africa. Um, so this idea that from far away, China can use uh, softer tools in a way uh, to, you know, to, protect, expand its interest and influence 
while also not really uh, exposing itself to significant backlashes that, for example, would, would be created in the case of deploying troops uh, unilaterally uh, and so far and so on. I want to take us back to March 17th, 2011. That's when the United Nations Security Council passed Resolution 1973, which authorized the use of force in Libya. And in many ways, what happened in Libya under the color of that UN resolution has had a profound impact on how Chinese mm -hmm. see military intervention and in the Middle East, North Africa, and worldwide. Yep. Uh, so let's talk about Libya. You've brought it up a couple of different times. You point out that the intervention went far beyond what China was comfortable with. And if, now the idea, let me just kind of set the, the table a little bit on that intervention. Originally, the French and the Americans wanted to intervene to protect civilians from the conflict. And then they took it one step further to be able to go after Gaddafi himself, and Gaddafi was killed during that conflict. That terrified the Chinese because the concern was that a UN resolution could be justified to intervene in China's neighborhood. And so what they have done since 2011 now is they have frustrated every UN effort on intervention since then. Talk to us a little bit about the impact of what UN Resolution 1973 had and the legacy of Libya. It had a tremendous uh, impact on Chinese thinking regarding, you know, R2P. That's responsibility to protect, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, responsibility to protect, yeah. The, generally speaking, the crisis resolution in the Middle East, as well as, you know, how China, um, you know, what, what, what are the liabilities of this massive economic and human presence in that region that China developed over the years? Um, so I would say that uh, two things are important uh, that, we could, that we should really see as a, you know, as a painful legacy of, uh, of that resolution and the NATO intervention in Libya. Um, the first one is really about Chinese foreign policy. As I said, it kind of triggered, it, not, not triggered, trigger is the wrong expression. It really forced Chinese policymakers to consider uh, the development of a military option to protect their own interests. And this is not really to intervene in the case, you know, stopping uh, NATO campaigns or not anything like that. But at least, you know, to develop those minimal capabilities in order to uh, evacuate uh, their citizens from, uh, uh, from some situation of danger. Um, and, and that, of course, is not a small thing for a country that for a long time tried to stay out, tried to avoid being sucked into thorny security issues outside Asia. Uh, so that's something that I, 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 I analyze in, in greater detail in the book. So different interests come into play, the debate changed. Um, there were several changes, also institutional, legal level, also Chinese uh, peacekeeping presence. Uh, in the region changed uh, and kind of mirrored this new uh, thinking about the role of uh, the military instrument uh, in, in, for Chinese uh, diplomacy toward the region. And of course, uh, the, the establishment of the base in Djibouti is connected to that. So this is the first, uh, first important legacy. Uh, the second one, I think it's a more general uh, growing awareness about uh, Western moves in the region, especially uh, an attempt to reassert the control, the, the role of the Security Council uh, really at the center of crisis resolution in the region. Um, we see that the Chinese emphasizing that, uh, for example, in Syria. Uh, uh, Wang Yi mentioned that again, especially now that China has, has assumed the presidency of the Security Council in May. Uh, for over, for example, the issue between uh, the, the Israeli-Palestinian issue and so far and so on. So, I, I, I mean, the Chinese were always very focused on the role of the Security Council. That really uh, kind of forced them, pushed them to further concentrate on the role of the Security Council and, you know, to really use uh, their, their, their seat, the permanent seat in there to ensure that 
nothing like Libya can happen again. From the African side, one should also point out that the Libya intervention was a complete disaster, you know, from in, in terms of the, the US's kind of wider agendas in, in Africa as well, because it, it, you know, kind of it immediately reinforced the narrative that that the only thing that the US is, is out for is, is regime change, which then was used by by people like Robert Mugabe for years and years afterwards as a, as a justification for, you know, kind of for cracking down on, on local populations is this kind of idea that, oh, if, you know, kind of like, you know, we need a strong central government because otherwise the US is going to be here, you know, Hillary Clinton is going to force regime change in Harare at any minute, you know, so this is extremely it ended up being very destructive um you know relating to to this issue of of you know of of the the this this the way that this 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 played in in China in Africa specifically um you mentioned that that um one of the key partners for for China um is the African Union um and of course you know China has as 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 really lent a lot of support to the African Union and also African Union peacekeeping can you talk a little bit about how the Libya incident also shaped China Africa Union um relations the, the African Union is seen as one of the main uh, partners uh, for China in the region. Um, I, I think we, we saw, I, I'm not really sure if it's possible to, to look at the role of Libya in further shaping uh, the relation between China and the African Union, but it definitely, uh, you know, China has always looked with great attention at the mood in international organization, sorry, in regional organization uh, toward regional crisis in order to understand uh, how also uh, regional countries would perceive uh, China's move in the Security Council. Um, so definitely, I, I I believe that we should we should keep you know we should keep on we should, we should continue seeing China, uh, you know, coordinating or at least consulting with uh, partners in the African Union uh, when it comes to you know f- future actions made by the United Nations in Africa, and we should see the same you know uh, between China and other regional organizations in other regions. Little side note to the responsibility to protect discussion is that uh, Samantha Power, who was then in the Obama administration, one of the biggest advocates for R2P and very much involved in the Libya decision, uh, was just confirmed by the Senate to be the United States Agency for International Development uh, administrators. So we have that voice inside the Biden administration as well, but unlikely that uh, the Biden administration will be anywhere near as interventionist in Africa as the Obama administration was on that front. Just a little interesting fun fact there. Uh, Very quickly, wanted to kind of come back to this idea of what we were hearing from the generals in the introduction about Chinese power projection. You talked about how Libya prompted the Chinese to build the base in Djibouti and to reduce the levels of vulnerabilities. But you also said something very interesting. You said China hasn't achieved regional hegemony here in Asia. So until that's done, there's no way they can Mm -hmm. actually project power into other parts of the world, especially one as complex as the Middle East or North Africa. So are the concerns of the senators and congressmen and the generals in the United States totally misplaced only because really... At the end of the day, the Chinese cannot project that much power into those regions where the United States still is the dominant hegemon. Well, I would say that we should not, you know, we should never say never uh, as a rule of thumb. But at the same time, I would say that their concerns are at the moment, or at least in the foreseeable future, I don't think they, they're based on solid ground. Uh, I mean, especially now with growing tensions between China and the United States in Asia, that's really where um, the focus and the energies of Chinese policymakers uh, are, uh, not in other places around the world. Uh, so I honestly, you know, I, I would I would expect them to keep, keep you know, uh, in, I would expect them to keep a low profile in the foreseeable future. Um, you know, the base in Djibouti is there, and uh, uh, you know, once you once you decided to open it and you announce it to the world, it makes sense, you know, to make the most out of it. So the long and the pier that eventually could host uh, um, the aircraft carrier and so far and so on, it makes sense to build that once everyone has accepted it's going to be there. Uh, but that's not does not mean that it will be definitely used as soon as possible. You know, as soon as it's ready. Um, again, I, I don't think. Uh, the, the, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer of the fact that the priority for Chinese diplomacy is in Asia, is not elsewhere. So unless there are dramatic incidents that involve 
a large number of Chinese nationals, I don't think we should expect big changes in the current presence. Yeah, and, and bringing an aircraft carrier group across the Indian Ocean <laughs> yeah, it's no is joke. logistically very <laughs> complicated to do. It's not simply sailing it. So even though they, you're right, even though they have the capability in Djibouti now to dock an aircraft carrier, the aircraft carrier doesn't travel alone. It comes with an entire battle group with it. And the logistics of fueling that, the communications, supplies, is not easy to do. The United States makes it look easy because we've been doing it for so long, but the Chinese have never taken their aircraft carriers further afield than the South China Sea, as far as I know. So as you pointed out, the theater of operations most of interest for the Chinese is right here in Southeast Asia and South and Asia, not in the Middle East and uh, and, and certainly as far afield as the as Iran in those areas. Kobus. Um, you know, relating to Iran, um, you point out in the article that China was a was a significant kind of like back channel um, ally to the U.S. In, in, in helping to to kind of to set up the Iran deal. Um, and then a lot of that got scrambled um, during the, the Trump era when, when they withdrew from the deal. Um, and a lot of that is still kind of up in the air now. How do you see the kind of U.S.-China relationship in relation to Iran happening as the Biden administration tries to, to resurrect the Iran deal? Good question. Um, good question. It, I think it's still difficult to tell, um, especially in the light of the 25-year uh, strategic cooperation plan between the two countries. Um, there is definitely, uh, you know, Iran is, is seen as in a way, signing the deal is definitely a signal to the United States about uh, the fact that China can also uh, you know, continue its cooperation also with countries that are not friendly to the United States um, and so on. But at the same time, Iran in the past played also an important role in, in the relations between China and the U.S. under the Obama administration also as, you know, as, a, as a platform, as a focal point for cooperation. Um, so I think it's a, we will know exactly what Iran's position in today's Sino-U.S. relations uh, only when and if uh, there will be uh, there will be positive news on the reactivation of the of the nuclear deal. I would say uh, because until then it's very difficult to understand. Uh, you know, there, there are, I would say there are mixed signals uh, that indicate Iran in a way as a. As, as as something that is used uh, to to poke the United States in a way, but at the same time, the the Chinese always said they're ready to to help in order to bring the the the, the JCPOA back to life. And the, in general, I would, I would say Chinese uh, analysts and experts have welcomed uh, Biden's intention to uh, to do exactly that. Uh, so again, mixed signal. I think we need to wait a bit more. I'd like to run a theory by you, and this is my own amateur theory, so it's not from any book or any smart scholars like yourself, but it's a theory that I have. We've been talking to people like Jonathan Fulton from Zayed University and a number of other China, Middle East Arab scholars who've talked about the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership Agreement, and it's very difficult to understand what the CSP is all about. So on the one hand, Iranian officials are very excited about this deal, which is a 25-year deal. Yeah. Uh, you know, the New York Times is the only one who put a value at $400 billion, which everybody thinks is ridiculous because the Iranians couldn't yeah. even <laughs> process $400 billion of investment even if they wanted to. But it's, it's a big deal, at least from the Iranian side. What we've heard on the Chinese right. side, especially from scholars like Fan Hongda at, in Shanghai, who've said, not a big deal at all. This is just an, an MOU. Even Zhao Lijian, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman, said it's more like mm -hmm. an MOU. In fact, it's not a formal treat treaty, so they don't have to reveal the, the contents of it. And so again, yeah. we're hearing these conflicting yeah. messages. In Washington, people are understandably playing into that narrative of China and Iran coming together, the new axis of evil. Here we go. Here's my thinking on this, and I'd love to get your take on it that China wants to position itself as an interlocutor between Iran and the outside world, much the same way that it does in North Korea. So when the United States comes knocking and says, we need your help on North Korea, the Chinese then turn around and say, okay, let's deal. That means if we help you in North Korea, mm -hmm. you're going to delay an arms sale or cancel an arms sale to Taiwan. If, you're going to, if we're going to help you in North Korea, you're going to make Congress back off of a 
uh, a censure on Xinjiang, on their on their core interests. Yeah, yeah. Do you I think see. Iran is an extension of that as well? And I get the sense that again, all of their politics drive back to their core interests at home, their red lines at home. And Iran is just another opportunity for them to be an interlocutor with the United States to be able to gain or extract concessions out of the Americans on issues mm. that are far more important to them than Iran. I would say that it's not an uh, implausible theory. That is about as good an um, endorsement as I'll ever get, Kobus. <laughs> not an implausible... <laughs> no, no <laughs> awesome. uh, sorry, 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 sorry. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, totally, it's definitely possible. I, I agree that that's... Um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not totally sure that's all part... That's, you know, that's the story and that's it. But I think it's definitely a big part of the story. Uh, again, uh, Iran played... Uh, 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 an important role. The nuclear deal played an important role uh, with Obama during the Obama administration. Um, so definitely, uh, there is also this understanding of the Iranian issue as something that can bring uh, China and the U.S. closer, um, very broadly, uh, to you know, uh, uh, to working together, non-proliferation, pro proliferation. Uh, at the same time. Uh, definitely, Chinese influence on Iran. Uh, again, it should be very cautious to say, you know, how much influence actually China has on Iran. Uh, like, like when it comes to North Korea, for example. Uh, but at the same time, China's important role, as far as way in in Iranian diplomacy and economy, definitely position China in a very, you know, put China in a very strong position when it comes also. Or to deal with anything related to Iran. I mean, you cannot ignore it. <laughs> so, and that's definitely a big part of this. And just as in North Korea, as you pointed out, China's influence is actually far more limited than a lot of people think. Yeah. It, it, you know, Kim Jong-un's going to do what Kim Jong-un's going to do, but it's not really important as to how of much course. influence China actually has, but the perceptions about what China's, you know, and maybe that's what it is in Iran as well. One other point that you brought up regarding Iran, which I think is very interesting, is that China wants to ensure that Iran is capable of resisting U.S. pressure. And that might be part of the driving force here to buy the oil, to make the investments just to strengthen Iran enough that it doesn't implode under the weight of U.S. sanctions, but at the same time helps to contribute to this multipolarity that you talked about and the transition away from unipolarity. In relation to that, to that very issue, um, you know, like we, we see a lot of discussion of, of, of this as a, as a kind of a move from a unipolar world to a multipolar world. But when one listens to U.S. stakeholders, like like in the, you know, the, the sound clips we listen to, they tend to be more focused on, a, on, on unipolar moving to bipolar, right? They, they, they seem to be putting up a, a, a quite a kind of a, you know, a, a us versus China kind of frame on this. How is it seen in Beijing? Like, is there a similar kind of tendency to to say multipolar when one actually means bipolar? Or are they, is, is there more of a, of a kind of a trying to calculate what an actual multipolar world would look like with, with you know, with actors like Turkey and Russia and so on, you know, kind of also significantly involved? Um, multipolar... It's. I think even in 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 China there is a, um, you know, the definition exactly what it means. It it really depends, and I think to a large extent it depends also on the nature, on the status of the relations between China and the United States. Depending if they're good or bad, um, you know, that can change. Uh, definitely, the more, uh, you know, the worse uh, they get, the more the stronger they push for a multipolar in which. Uh, U.S. actions are constrained by, uh, you know, the U.N. and and uh, China and its partners and so far and so on. Uh, you know, the, the stronger they will be, this kind of push. Um, but but again, I think one of the important points that, that we try to make in the paper is that you know the fact that the U.S. is target of this offshore balancing does not again it doesn't preclude cooperation. Whereas whenever a Chinese interest are not, you know, uh, and American ones are aligned or at least, uh, you know, there is no conflict between them, uh, you know, and there is no real <laughs> barrier uh, to, for cooperation. I think this is an important thing. So also when I talk about the transition from unipolar, bipolar, multipolar, and so on, and so on I, I think China remains a very pragmatic actor. Um, 
So again, to a large extent, then the nature of these bipolar, multipolar, uh, you know, the number of poles you want to count uh, really depends on, uh, on, you know, on who and how much threaten China's interest. I often like to say that the tectonic plates of geopolitics are, are brushing up against each other right now. We're in this amazing moment where things are actually changing. And when tectonic plates hit up against each other, it causes an earthquake, sometimes small, sometimes large. But I'm trying to understand, we've covered a lot of ground in our discussion. We heard a lot of insights from the US and some of those sound bites. How did you conclude your book? Talk to us a little bit about where you dropped everybody off at the end of the book. <laughs> um. I think there are two uh, two things. One is, uh, in a way, the kind of the, the consensus that the military is necessary to protect Chinese interests overseas um, is just the starting point. How to do that remains an open question, um, and therefore, if, when, how that will happen is still, you know, we we still have to less, we still have to wait, wait and see. Um, so, and that, to a large extent, will depend on our hand on the crisis, the scope of crisis, uh, wherein Chinese interests, especially I would say, large number of Chinese nationals, might be involved into, uh, as well as how other countries, and here I include both the West, very broadly West, as well as uh, Chinese local partners, uh, will react to Chinese moves. Um, I think it's important uh, to keep in mind that, again, generally speaking, the consensus that is that was built and that in, through that process described in book was to a large extent a crisis-driven process. Um, so it was not necessary that China always wanted, for example, to uh, to think about a military option for the protection of its interest overseas. That was that was a necessity that you know was created by Libya. Um, and, and other and other uh, accidents. So, on the one hand, there is definitely Chinese Chinese policymakers are thinking about that, but how that will develop further depends also on again on how other countries will react and how other countries' uh, actions will be perceived as threatening by Chinese policymakers. Again, Libya really is important because. Uh, Probably even if NATO intervention, I mean, I don't think it was aimed at undermining Chinese presence in Libya, but that was the result, um, and that had a significant impact on the Chinese foreign policy making machine and on Chinese strategy, and so I think we should keep that in mind. Uh, you know, China again, Chinese behavior has been largely crisis driven, but that doesn't mean there might not be a reaction to that. <laughs> Uh, I think that's a very important to keep in mind. Two important contributions to the discourse right now on what China's doing in the Middle East and North Africa, protecting China's interest overseas, securitization and foreign policy. That is a new book published by Oxford University Press. I will say this yet again for regular listeners of the show. I express my ongoing frustration about academic pricing of books. <laughs> uh, it is unfortunately priced at $100 and there is no cheap Kindle edition. Not yet. So this is for anybody who is in charge of purchasing books for libraries. Please purchase this book and make it accessible to students. Those of you who are outside the academic paywalls, well, you're going to have a little bit of a difficulty accessing it. Also, there's an, uh, an academic article, most likely also within a, ma a major paywall. China as an offshore balancer in the Middle East and North Africa, published last month uh, by the Rusi Journal, both written by Andrea Giselli, who's an assistant professor of international relations at Fudan University in Shanghai. Andrea, thank you so much for once again coming on the show and helping sort all of this out for us. We really appreciate it. Congratulations on the two publications. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Well, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Just type my name and you'll find me. Otherwise, www.andreagiselli.com and you will find all my research there. And also, I want to give a quick shout out to the work that Andrea does with the China Mediterranean Project, otherwise known as the China Med Project, 
We feature every single month on the China Africa Project website, the China Med Observer. This is the most valuable piece of research that you're going to find out there on Chinese engagement in the Mediterranean. And what's amazing about it is it does a media review and scholarly review of everything from the point of view of Chinese scholars and Chinese media looking at the Mediterranean. And the Mediterranean is very broadly defined, by the way. So we're talking about North Africa, Southern Europe, into the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. I mean, it's really big and broad. So this is a really large swath of the world that's covering here. It looks at it, again, from the Chinese looking out, but then also they do a review of what the Israeli press, the Lebanese press, you know, Moroccan press, all of them, what the scholars are saying. And it's a great digest. It comes usually the first week of the month on our page. You can also find it on the China Med website as well, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. So I just want to give a, a shout out to that because it's amazing work that you guys do and really valuable to all of us having a better understanding of that part of the world. So congratulations on that. It's it's all uh, thanks to the team. Um, yeah, the great scholars and, and great colleagues. Um, yeah, it, it, correct. Every, every week we also have a newsletter and Twitter, China Med, or www.chinamed.it. Everything is there. I'll make sure that everybody has links to that if you're curious about following Andrea and the team and what they're doing at the China Med Project as well as all the work Andrea's doing. There'll be a lot of links in the show notes of this program. So Andrea, thank you so much and congratulations again. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kobos, for the great questions and uh, for hosting me. Kobos, throughout our discussion with Andrea, I kept coming back in my mind to a tweet that I saw the other day by Chris Ogunmodede, who is a guy I follow on Twitter, and he's excellent. And, and he said, quote, fascinating how much nuanced information exists on the scope of Chinese footprint in Africa and how little senior U.S. policymakers and the foreign policy establishment appear to be engaging with it. It's almost like there's an ideological commitment involved here. Now, I don't know about the ideological commitment. I believe in the in the phrase, and this is my motto in life, is never assign conspiracy when mediocrity will do. That being said, the nuance that Andrea brings to the conversation is something that those congressmen and senators and those generals so desperately need. And Antony Blinken, oh my God, he needs it. I mean, I think Antony Blinken really revealed how little he knows about this subject. And it was shocking, in my view, how disgraceful it was that he was so unprepared for such a simple question. That being said, the nuance required to understand this is so much more than what is being brought to the debate right now in the media and by policymakers that, again, I can't recommend them enough to start reading some of these things by people like Andrea. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, you know, about Blinken, I, I, it was really baffling for me, be, among others, because we know lots of people in the State Department. We know how much attention is paid in the State Department about, the, like, to the nitty gritty of of Chinese engagement in Africa. So, the fact that that didn't kind of percolate upwards was interesting, you know, um, and and it also, um, uh, you know, and, and here actually I was discussing this with my, with my partner, um, who's, you know, he, he has a different field of expertise, he doesn't, he doesn't particularly focus on, on geopolitics, but he asks whether we think um, the, that, the, for example, the debt trap narrative, the, you know, this, that, the, you know, there's, because there's two, there's two narratives, one, 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 a kind of a, a, a you know, a, pretty worthless one which is that China, you know China is, is on is on purpose indebting poor countries to then seize state assets which we've discussed many times and, and there's no proof for and then it's an only somewhat more nuanced one which is that China has you know that the, the China kind of has these loans with these poor countries and that that leads to to large leverage within those governments you know that's that's a, a somewhat more nuanced version of that same that same that's a corollary to the debt trap. And, and that's what people like Joshua Eisenman at the University of Notre mm. Dame contend, is that it may not be about the seizure of assets, but it is about... About building influence. And, and, and creating a sinocentric sphere of influence. Exactly. But then why is that so difficult to articulate? Like, why, why, why you know, kind of, why is the one, you, you know, why, why is the debt trap, the classic debt trap narrative then so much easier to push 
And why, why do they kind of default back to that narrative when the other one isn't so difficult to articulate, right? Kind of so, so the, that's something that I don't get. Like, is, is there just a, a kind of an assumption that the, that the one narrative will just work better? Um, or is it just simply kind of lethargy, you know, within, with, 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 within all, you know, kind of all, yeah, you know, kind of just friction with, within the institution that it's just difficult to move on to new talking points? Yeah, and to your point about the professional staff within the State Department, and you see this quite a bit even at some of the briefings, the public briefings, how well-versed they are on these issues, and they bring nuance to it, and clearly that isn't making it up to the seventh floor where Blinken's office is. There is a massive gap. And, and, and I brought this up in the newsletter when we have seen these intelligence failures, and I look at this as an intelligence failure, that when a guy like Blinken is using information that is literally a decade old, the consequences have been absolutely tragic for the world. We saw this in Iraq. We've seen miscalculations by the United States over and over again. So there is a lot at stake for a guy like Blinken to get it right. And also, interestingly, I don't know if you heard in the tone of, the, of General Townsend, at least I think it was General Townsend, talking back, yes, it was General Townsend talking back Austin Scott about war. When the generals are talking down the policymakers about war, we got a problem here, people. <laughs> I mean, the generals shouldn't be having to tell the congressman like, okay, chill down, put the guns away. That's not the general's job. The congressmen also need to be informed and representatives also need to be informed. And I think that's one of the breakdowns in Washington right now is that legislators are really still stuck in a different world. They lack that nuance. They are really adhering close to an ideology that either doesn't exist, or as you talked about, they're trying to build a narrative. And maybe that narrative suits other interests beyond the reality of what we're confronting right now. Because as Andrea pointed out, the Chinese are not capable of projecting that much power to confront the United States, either in Africa or in the Middle East. And yet the United States and these representatives are coming back thinking that this is a military issue, and it's not a military issue. Yeah, and, and with that then comes comes a kind of a diminishment of, of the reasons why these these recipient countries are, are in the global south would then want to deal with China. You know, it then in, in that context, if if one already has diminished the, the developmental and other kind of ways that, that China is, that those kind of contributions that China brings to these countries, then the debt trap makes sense, right? Kind of because then it's just simply like, oh, these people are just, they're just fooled. You know, they're just being kind of, they're just being lied to and manipulated by this kind of China. Chinese overlord, rather than they making they making calculated decisions, you know, re reacting to to a whole bunch of, of realities, only some of which are Chinese realities. Like, a, you know, like one one of the points that, that I think never comes out in, in these discussions is a lot of the reasons why African governments are dealing so closely with China is because they face so many constraints in dealing with Western partners. You know, so so the the the, the lay of that landscape shaped the the cooperation with China just as much as China did, but that's a very that that's somehow a point that almost never gets made in these discussions and the fact that the chinese are actually showing up let's go back to it again mm. i mean blinken didn't go to kenya or to nigeria yeah wang yi did wang yi <laughs> did i wrote on twitter you know i said boy the, the guys of the chinese foreign ministry must be getting a giggle out of this one <laughs> i mean like the idea that he's taking a quote unquote and i'm using my air quotes right here you know virtual travel and virtual trip and, you, you know, I can imagine that the Chinese foreign ministry guys are like, you, you know, you got to see this. I mean, geez, it's just ridiculous. I mean, I, I mean, again, they think we're stupid. That's the funny thing. What offends me the most, just I want to be very clear with everybody. What offends me the most out of all this is I'm not being critical of the United States for the sake of being critical of the United States. What I find objectionable and offensive is how mediocre all of this is. That's what I find objectionable here. It's just so mediocre. It's not bringing their A game. It's not being properly briefed. It's not showing up with vaccines. It's not showing up with PPE. I reached out to USAID PR, okay, the public relations team at USAID. And because I went on to their website, to their fact sheets, and anybody can do this, and I invite people to do this. Look up USAID COVID-19 fact sheets. And because I wanted to see what the United States was doing to support Africa vis-a-vis -vis COVID-19 because I had been under the assumption that they weren't doing very much. And so I reached out to a couple of people in Washington. They said, you got to check out the fact sheets because that lists everything that they're doing around the world for, for COVID-19. The USAID 
is very active in many parts of the world and does incredible work in the field that it's actually operational. I couldn't believe that they're not doing anything in COVID-19 because, of course, COVID is everything right now. So I go on to the website, I look at the fact sheets, and I can't find anything in 2021, not one activity that USAID has done in Africa. I said, I don't think this is possible. So I reached out to the PR team at USAID and I said, can you direct me to the fact sheet? Where is the PR statement that shows what USAID has done in Africa? Again, in a very innocent way. I wasn't going with any agenda of any kind because I genuinely want to compare what the Chinese have done, what the Americans have done, what the Europeans have done just to see. And what I got was, I got an answer back which said, um, you need to talk to the State Department because of the nature of your research. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. I think it's because I have the word China in our email address name that they got freaked out. But I found that such a fascinating response. Because if you were doing a gazillion things, you would have a whole Twitter channel devoted to it. You would have fact sheets up and down. You'd have videos on YouTube. I can't see it. I'm not saying that the USAID is not doing a lot of things. I just can't find them. And it appears that they don't really want to advertise what they're doing. But again, it goes to the fact of substance, competence, and mediocrity. And what I see coming from both Europe and the United States is mediocrity. Now, please allow me to say, just because we're seeing a lot of mediocrity and from the Europeans and from the Americans on this issue, particularly related to vaccines and others, does not mean implicitly or automatically that the Chinese are delivering on excellence on all fronts. They're just getting away on the cheap. They can ship 5,000 doses of a vaccine. They can do, you know, ship some PPE somewhere because they're the only game in town. They get all the credit. So they don't even have to be that good to win here. That's the mind-boggling part of all this. For me, the, the really kind of, like, you know, kind of revealing aspect of this is that if, if you think about how much complaining there is by, by politicians in Western countries, here is like a wide swath, but like you, the US a lot, but also Australia, the, Europe, about the lack of transparency of Chinese activities in Africa, you know, um, and, you, you know, th then, then it becomes... You know, not only the lack of transparency, but then also frequently, you know, from in the same breath, also complaining about about the use of vaccines and PPE and other COVID-related issues as as a form of vaccine diplomacy or mask diplomacy. So much complaining about those two things coming out of these capitals, which then, you know, like if if one if one is then looking at at you know, the the you know the the kind of twinned lack of lack of transparency from Washington on this issue. You know, it's just it, the, 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 the disconnect between the talk and the reality just becomes very kind of dispiriting, you know. But I think none it's of shocking. that is I mean, it's like, really shocking. shocking, sure. But I think don't think anyone in Africa is shocked. I think this is, this is par for the course in no. Africa, you know. I mean, it's like what Ron Cato said in the, in the report that he wrote for us, that this is kind of revealing as to where the U.S. and how the U.S. thinks of Africa. Like he couldn't be bothered to get on a plane. A lack of regard, right? Kind of like it's it's not, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's it's not an important, it's not a priority area on for the U.S., right? Kind of, an, and that is made very clear. It's not a priority area. I mean, they do, what, $45, $50 billion of trade? I mean, come on, for an economy like the United States at, I don't know, 17, 18 trillion, I forget how big the U.S. economy is. I mean, 45 billion is nothing. So whenever you hear the United States talk about how important Africa is to it, Put it in the context of what are the measurements that prove that. And, and right now, and it's not even on the military front, because on the, on the military front, the Pentagon was pleading last year to, to stop the withdrawal of troops from Africa. So even that they wanted to pull back from. AFRICOM was going to be downsized, ironically, to fight the Chinese and confront the Chinese in other parts of the world. So rather weird thinking there, given that they look at Africa being a theater of operations and they want to move U.S. forces out. Anyway, this is super confusing. As you can say, we're trying to kind of just mash our brains through it. It's not easy to do. Andrea is a guy out there who helps us find those North Stars. Jonathan Fulton at Zayed University is another guy who does that. I recommend you follow both of them on Twitter. I'll put links to them in the show notes as well. If you do have academic access, read Andrea's stuff. It is really, really insightful. For those of you who don't have academic access, come to our website, look for the China Med Observer, 
It's a monthly edition and review of all of what's going on in Africa, the Middle East, and North Africa as well. So I highly recommend that. So great discussions coming from the folks at Fudan University on that. And they really give a lot of the Chinese voice and insight that's missing from these conversations that I think policymakers like Senator Inhofe really need to take a few minutes to listen to. Just my two cents there. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. If you'd like to follow what we're doing every single day of the week, please do subscribe to our daily newsletter. It's like getting a China-Africa daily intelligence brief. All the things that we discussed in the show today have been run in real time in the newsletter. You get them on the same day. Today, I featured everything that was being said by Senator Inhofe. I put the transcript in there. So if you're doing research, if you're a journalist, you get the quotes directly from that. The purpose of this newsletter is to save you time. In 15 minutes, you get a daily rundown of everything the Chinese are doing in Africa, the Middle East, and now more broadly in the global south. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Uh, for our loyal podcast listeners, if you use the promo code podcast, we'll take 20% off the price. Just use that code podcast at checkout. So that'll do it. We'll be back again next week. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>